Well, well, well. Good evening and welcome to Socrates in the City, the thinking person's alternative to insert joke here. <laughs> it's been a busy week, my friends. Uh, my name is Eric Metaxas, and I will be your server for the evening. I hate when people say that. I'll be your host for the evening. Um, but I would love to bring you some sparkling water for the table if I could. Um, I hate that too. Thank you for letting me get that off my chest. Um, if you ever find yourself waiting on me, just know in advance that I'm not interested in the sparkling water. Um, thanks for letting me get that off my chest. That was important. I wanted to welcome all of you here tonight. And in fact, I'm going to do that now. Welcome to Socrates in the City. Um, it's a delightfully muggy April night, don't you think? Yeah. Nothing like a muggy, pea, soupy kind of spring to set hearts aflutter. I never thought I'd be praying for snow in April, but I think at 2 o'clock today I was, uh, I was praying for snow. Um, for those of you who have not been to Socrates before, I just want to tell you a little bit about who we are. Um, as many of you already know, Socrates in the city takes its name from Socrates. Thank you. Uh, no, actually, Socrates rather famously said that the unexamined life is not worth living. We at Socrates in the city, whoever we are, agree with that. Um, and we thought we'd set about creating a forum in which busy, thoughtless New Yorkers, and that would, alas, be all of you, I think, uh, would have an opportunity, you, you busy, uh, thoughtless New Yorkers, would have an opportunity to... Um, to think about the big uh, questions, the big and controversial questions of life. Uh, big questions dealing, for example, with the existence and nature of God, uh, the problems of evil and suffering, the relationship between faith and science, uh, question of human nature, and the purpose of human life. Um, incidentally, I don't want to forget to mention this. Two weeks from tonight, we have another Socrates event at the Colony Club on 62nd and Park. I'm, I'm just telling you right now. Um, you can RSVP for that starting tomorrow. Uh, the speaker will be Dr. Peter Kraft. We've heard from him a number of times before, and we've even heard him give this talk once before. The talk is Making Sense Out of Suffering. Uh, he gave that talk about two and a half years ago, I think. It is such a fabulous talk. As far as I'm concerned, it's, it's definitive. It's just, that's it. When people ask that classic question, you know, how can you have a good God with all the suffering in the world? This is the talk. It might not answer the question, Totally, but it will bring you as close to getting an answer as I think you can get. And certainly his book will take you that much closer. So that's two weeks from tonight, 62nd and Park, the Colony Club. Okay, now I thought tonight uh, that it would be a good idea for me to share a little bit uh, on how we at Socrates in the City choose our speakers. Um, it's a good question, and I'm glad you asked it. Thank you. Um, <laughs> Okay, let me just give you a little bit about the background. The way we, we choose our speakers is normally uh, after a speaker has spoken, you know, tonight, for example, uh, after a speaker has spoken, we turn our attention uh, to choosing a new speaker, but we wait a couple of days sort of, you know, out of respect for the previous speaker. <laughs> but when the time is right, of course, the Board of Socrates in the City has what we like to call a Socratic conclave. Um, <laughs> in which we vote, you know, until a speaker has been chosen. Uh, at which point, yes, yes, uh, our website, uh, a puff of white smoke goes up from the website. Now, a lot of you have noticed that that's been happening. Up until now, that's been unintentional. 
Um, but we have a new website, a whole thing, and um, from now on, the Puff of White Smoke will be very intentional, very, very intentional, deliberate. Um, and of course, at that point, the website announces uh, in the Latin, Habemus Speakerum. Uh, it's just, it's a glorious, glorious uh, moment. Uh, the faithful have, of course, been, you know, tipped off that a speakerum has been chosen, and they flock to their computers to wait for this moment. And then the curtains part, as it were, in the puff of smoke, and the announcement is made. It's just, it's a magical, magical thing. There's traditionally a short period of, of celebration uh, once the speakerum has been announced. People just kind of mill around and swim in the magnific magnificence of this giddy uh, historical moment. It's a very, very uh, exciting time. People are just a Twitter with a celebration of this announcement, uh, followed a couple of hours later by TV pundits bitching about the views of the speaker. <laughs> it's, uh, that's just happened uh, now and again. I don't know. It just happens hours later. It just it shifts, and it's, uh, it's odd. It's odd, and it's not always... Uh, Pretty, but it, as I say, it does happen. Keith uh, Olbermann, for example, on MSNBC accused John Polkinghorne of having a Nazi past. Uh, it was um, it was very harsh. It was very harsh. Uh, Chris uh, Matthews commented on the fact that I, your host, am half German, and uh, and I watched a lot of uh, you know Hogan's Heroes as a kid, and uh, and uh, I didn't appreciate it. Let me just put it that way, because uh, I'm also half Greek. He didn't mention that. Um, Anyway, of course, in my oblique way now, I'm referring to the big news yesterday, the selection of the Pope. I can only kid you for so long. I know that some of you picked up on that. Um, but actually, you know, rather seriously, I was, I was stunned yesterday at the, at the speed with which some of the critics... Um, critiqued. Is that a verb? Critiqued? Uh, criticized. It was, it was rather a stunning thing. S some of, uh, of the, the pundits referred to the, some of the new Pope's rather unflattering nicknames, among them... God's Rottweiler, which is fascinating because I, I didn't even know that God had pets up there. It's um, a lot of hearsay. I mean, people throw these things around, but um, but God's Rottweiler was was one of the less uh, pleasant ones. But Pat Buchanan, I noticed uh, in his role as pundit, attempted to balance the God's Rottweiler comment by saying that he thought the new Pope would be a good German Shepherd. Yeah. He, he, he really did say that. I thought it was brilliant. I wish I had written it. Um, but it is a German Shepherd. That was just, it was just too good. It was like a toss-off line on Chris Matthews or something. I thought I had to repeat it. So um, anyway, it is always exciting, you know, to wonder who's going to be chosen for anything for president or, or pope or whatever. But of course, there are always very real fears that go with it. Uh, for example, there were fears uh, among some folks um, yesterday that the, that the papacy of Pope John Paul would inevitably be followed by that of Pope George Ringo. <clears throat> uh, it's actually, it's a Beatles joke. Um, remember the Beatles? Um, anyway, uh, who would then be, actually, I, di I didn't write that either. That's the good news. Um, but, uh, but of course, the papacy of, of uh, Pope George Ringo would then be followed by Pope Paul McCartney and Wings. And, and perhaps most impressively by Pope Plastic Ono Band. <clears throat> wow. <laughs> Remember Yoko Ono? Yeah, she was great. She was great. A little screechy for the papacy, though. Um, anyway, it's interesting to watch that kind of coverage. I was fascinated at how much you learn. It's just sort of like you're, you're getting a, a whole uh, education. Um, I was interested, for example, in the coverage of how the new Pope Benedict chose his name. 
Uh, there was a lot of coverage on that. One piece of information that didn't seem to get much uh, airplay, uh, Vatican insiders, uh, some of them said that one of the main reasons Ratzinger had chose the name Benedict is because that's part of the name of his favorite brunch entree. It's, uh, it's true, in Latin, it would be uh, Ova Benedicti, I think. Uh, con cafe macchiato. Per favore. Signorina. Bellissima. Basta. Um, another thing that I learned, which I was fascinated with, is that the new pope just a few years ago, uh, Pope... Uh, Benedict XVI was bugging the previous Pope, John Paul II, to let him leave the, the Vatican and enter the world of academia because, you know, he had two PhDs and he wanted to leave the Vatican and go back to academia. As we know, that didn't happen and probably now really never, never will happen <laughs> because being Pope is really, when you come right down to it, a kind of a lifetime gig. Um, and of course, now that he uh, now that he is pope and, and will be for a while, uh, he's uh, he's been elected. He's got a raft of things to deal with that he wouldn't have to deal with had he gone back to academia. Of course, of, of course, there's the huge responsibility that goes with the job of being pope. Then there's all the criticism you have to deal with, and last but not least, there'll be loads of annoying junk mail, starting with "Dear Mr. Sixteenth." You know he's Benedict the Sixteenth, right? <laughs> Yoko Ono. Okay, now to our speaker tonight, Dr. Michael Gillen. Dr. Michael Gillen was born in East LA, which will be familiar to most of you from the song by Cheech and Chong, <laughs> or some of you perhaps. Uh, he earned his Bachelor of Science from UCLA and his PhD from Cornell University in Physics, Mathematics, and Astronomy. And as an English major, I'm impressed, I admit it. Uh, for eight years thereafter, he was an award-winning physics instructor at Harvard University. Never heard of it, I'm sorry to say. Um, he has also written hundreds of articles for numerous distinguished publications, including Science News and Psychology Today magazines and the New York Times and Washington Post. For 14 years, he was the Emmy Award-winning science correspondent for ABC News. He appeared regularly on Good Morning America 2020, Nightline and World News Tonight. Dr. Gillen is the best-selling author of two critically acclaimed books for the general public about mathematics. Uh, I'm not buying that for a second. General public mathematics, I don't buy that. But, uh, but I know where you're going with it. Um, they are titled Bridges to Infinity, The Human Side of Mathematics, and Five Equations That Changed the World, The Power and Poetry of Mathematics, both of which um, are available at our book table. Uh, his latest book is Can a Smart Person Believe in God, on which subject he'll be speaking to us tonight. And I always say up front that Socrates in the City means to begin a conversation on the examined life. We can't do much uh, in an hour or so here, so we encourage you, if you would, to buy our CDs, which are laughably priced at $5, and uh, buy our books so that you can continue thinking about these things once you leave the premises. Um, Dr. Gillen is the president of Spectacular Science Productions and also the host of an upcoming weekly one-hour primetime science and technology series for the History Channel, that'll start in January. Uh, he lives just outside of Boston with his wife and five-year-old son. Um, a word on a format before we begin. Most of you know uh, our speaker speaks for about 35 or 40 minutes, uh, after which time uh, we have about 35 or so minutes for Q&A. Uh, that's about it. And so without further ado, 
Dr. Michael Gillen. Well, good evening. Thank you for all, uh, thank all of you for coming. And I, I, I really want to thank you, Eric, for inviting me to, to this. I really think you ought to franchise this. Don't you just love the title, Socrates in the City? Uh, I'd, if you are ever going to franchise it, I'd like to volunteer to start one up in the Boston area. It's very cool. I'm just so thrilled to be here. I live in Massachusetts, but really New York has become like a second home to me. Uh, I have lots of precious memories, uh, friends and colleagues here, some of them here this evening, as a matter of fact. This is where I got my start as a network television correspondent, first at CBS, uh, and then at ABC, and then briefly and at CNN. And now, uh, thanks to A&E, it's where I'm going to get my start as the host of a primetime series. So during my years here at the, uh, the Big Apple, uh, I have been blessed to come up through the ranks with uh, an exceptionally talented group of young producers and reporters. And uh, many of them now are our anchors, their executive producers, senior producers. Uh, among them, John Stossel, Elizabeth Vargas, Chris Wallace, Rob Krulwich, Bill O'Reilly, Tom Touche, John Green, Kathleen Fryery, Melissa Dunst, uh, uh, just to name a few. Uh, before coming here to New York, uh, I was a print reporter uh, in Washington, D.C. And there, too, I was blessed to uh, be uh, to work alongside a generation of very talented cub reporters, uh, people, for example, like Bill Broad and Warren Leary, Gina Collada, who are all now at the New York Times, and Joel Greenberg, who's now at the, New York, at the Los Angeles Times. Uh, earlier still, back when I was a school kid, uh, scientists believed that uh, what made us humans special uh, was our intelligence. Remember, homo sapiens means wise man. Uh, but then scientists discovered that whales and apes, ravens, birds of all kinds, lots of animals have intelligence. So that's not what makes us unique. Our IQ is not what makes us unique. The question is, what does then, if anything? Well, here's a clue. Think of Bambi. Bambi doesn't pray, doesn't bury his dead, doesn't walk around the forest wondering whether he's going to heaven or hell. Only we do that. That's what makes us unique, our spirituality. It's what I call our SQ, our spiritual quotient. Now, let me just say right off the bat that it's entirely possible that atheists are correct, that God is just, in fact, a soothing figment of our imagination. But that raises a problem, one of many problems I see with atheism. The God of Abraham comforts the afflicted, for sure. But let's face it, he's anything but warm and fuzzy. In fact, he can be downright scary, just the opposite of comforting and soothing. Actually, for precisely that reason, some atheists believe God is simply a chastising figment of the human imagination, that our minds uh, invented God as a way of keeping us in line, uh, scaring us straight, as it were. And perhaps that's true. But here again, there's a problem. Historically, as we all know, people who believe in God have been rebels, just the opposite of well-behaved conformists. 
Indeed, even today, we see Orthodox Jews and Christians rapidly emerging, ironically enough, as America's new radical counterculture, the Tom Haydens, Gloria Steinems, and Bob Dylans of the new millennium. All things considered, then, I'm betting God is very real. Let me tell you why. But first, I'm going to take a drink of water. This is mine, right? Yes. Sorry, I'm battling a cold. So I may have to do that a few times tonight. As Eric pointed out, I was born in East Los Angeles, in the middle of the Mexican barrio. My father and grandfathers were all Pentecostal ministers. But like any kid, I myself had only a childish faith in God. From day one, science was my heartthrob. I was an intellectual by nature, curious to a fault. Among my family and friends, a real oddball. And I say that because if you've ever been to East Los Angeles, uh, you know there aren't any universities in that proximity. I had never stepped inside of a lab. I'd never been in a university, never met a scientist in my life, but there you go. I wanted more than anything in life to be a scientist. And I was an oddball because none in my family cared about science, had ever had anything to do with science. Most of my family never had gone beyond high school except for my father. At school, middle school, I remember I had a math teacher who called me Michael Jillian because I was always interrupting his class with my Jillian questions. And as I grew older, I became an open-minded skeptic who constantly questioned conventional wisdom, still that way. And it's a trait, I might add, that serves me well as a scientist and as a journalist. After graduating from UCLA, I went to Cornell, where, as Eric indicated, I earned my 3D PhD in physics, math, and astronomy, and then to Harvard, where I taught physics. My fellow academics weren't particularly spiritual, at least not outwardly so. So it was easy for me to dive into my scientific studies. Being a nerd came naturally to me. Some ways, the life that I've lived since then is like a dream to me. Because if you saw pictures of me in those years, I really was a quintessential nerd. Never would, in my wildest dreams, would I have imagined that I'd be on television or, or doing anything like I have done since then. But a funny thing happened to me on, on the way to Cambridge, Massachusetts. One day, I met a beautiful young lady named Laurel. And together, out of curiosity, we decided to read the Bible from cover to cover. I wanted to see for myself what it was all about. As I said, I was raised in an intensely intensely religious environment, but I had never read the Bible from cover to cover. I'd had its verses spoon-fed to me uh, from one sermon to another. And I got to tell you, It shocked me. The Bible contained insights into the human condition I'd never read in any scientific textbook, or any book for that matter, sacred or spiritual. And yet, that's not what sold me. Irony of ironies, what really brought me to my knees was science. Three things happened to me. 
Number one, I discovered there is a genius to the physical world that is more than skin deep. By that I mean the exquisite biological machinery of a simple one-celled organism. The oh-so-improbable, oh-so-fragile ecosystem of the earth. The awesome choreography of the cosmos. From the microscopic to the macroscopic, there is an orderliness that simply beggars the imagination. It's as if the universe has won the lottery, not once, but a million times. It's as if at every scale of reality, the universe has hit the jackpot. Given all this, I came to a point in my scientific studies when the simplest, most reasonable, most intellectually honest conclusion I could come to was this. Amazing as it sounds, our universe is the creation of some stupendous rational entity not wholly conceivable with human IQ alone. Number two. Science brought me to my knees by broadening my mind. Black holes, the quantum vacuum, virtual particles, imaginary time, dark energy, ten-dimensional superstring theory, tachyons, naked singularities, quarks, multiple universes, and on and on and on. You have to understand, we scientists believe in these exotica based on indirect circumstantial evidence and a whole lot of faith. So believing in God, or a human soul, or the persistence of consciousness, life after death, was easy. In fact, compared to my scientific beliefs, my religious beliefs are positively mundane. Who would have figured? Let me give you one quick example. In the Bible, in Ephesians 4.12, the Apostle Paul says this, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of the dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Pretty far out stuff, right? Well, try this on for size. According to superstring theory, which is, as you probably know, the hottest new idea in physics right now, uh, we live not in a four-dimensional universe, but at least a ten-dimensional universe made up of tiny, invisible, vibrating threads. Think of them as the pixels, the ultimate pixels of physical reality, these threads. In a documentary titled Me and Isaac Newton, terrible grammar, great documentary. (laughs) It's actually taken, the title Me and Isaac Newton is taken from a quote from an illiterate scientist. <laughs> uh, but in that documentary, uh, Michio Kaku, a wonderful theoretical physicist right here at the City College of New York, says this. We spend our lives in three dimensions, moving forwards and backwards, left and right, up and down, not realizing that there are perhaps other dimensions out there. And the secret of the universe may lie in unlocking the secret of those hidden dimensions. So says Professor Kaku. Now, 
you know, now you know what I mean when I say that science brought me to my knees by broadening my mind. If I'm willing to buy into the wholly unproven speculation that our universe has a multiplicity of hidden dimensions bursting with mysterious string-like entities, then trust me, believing in God and heavenly realms is NBD. No big deal. Number three, science brought me to my knees by showing me how exacting the truth is. Truth is very uncompromising. Now, many people use Einstein's theory of relativity to justify moral relativism, to argue that truth, that right and wrong, are merely in the eye of the beholder, that the universe, that God himself, could be totally different things to different people. We're all familiar with that point of view. But the whole of modern science proves just the opposite. Yes, certain superficial features of reality can appear differently to different observers. That's the gist of special and general theory of relativity. But the entire scientific edifice the whole enchilada rests upon believing in the existence of one ultimate, unifying, and knowable truth. If it didn't, science would be out of business. In other words, outward appearances notwithstanding, scientists believe that there is only one true science, one true set of physical laws, and one true standard of proof. Given that, and please note, we're not talking about religion here. As a scientist and as an intellectual, it became the most natural thing in the world for me to believe, therefore, that there's only one true God, one true set of spiritual laws, and one true standard of right and wrong. And by the way, my story isn't unique, not by a long shot. For example, for the past half century, Professor Anthony Flew has been one of the most ardent, articulate atheists on the planet. Yet, just before Christmas of last year, Flew made the headlines. You may have heard of this. At age 81, Flew decided that the scientific evidence for God, especially in biology and in cosmology, was now just too overwhelming to refute. And this is a man who for 50 years had written dozens of books in defense of the atheist position. And this is especially appropriate to our gathering tonight. I, I want you to know, you know, I go all out for, for events like this, Eric, okay? But listen to what Flew said. He said, my whole life, quote, my whole life has been guided by the principle of Plato's Socrates. Follow the evidence Follow the evidence wherever it leads. Close quote. Well, Flew followed the evidence all right. And like me, inevitably, I believe he came face to face with his creator. And it's also interesting, I'll add, as opposed, at, at first, uh, Flew made it very clear that he had only become a deist. And I recall that uh, someone in the atheist community 
and you have to understand that Flew's conversion was the equivalent of Billy Graham one day decide, you know, announcing that he no longer believed in God. I mean, that Flew had that kind of stature in the atheist community. And, and uh, someone in the atheist community said, well, not to worry, he only believes in a minimal God now. That, just to, which, which I take it to mean that it's only a God who created the universe. Uh, and Flew made it very clear, too, that he was only now a deist. But more recently, in an extensive interview he did for Biola University, now he is uh, seriously considering, he says, uh, the, the, the uh, possible existence of a personal God. It's very interesting, because Flew is a man, a very intellectual man. Now, let's be very clear here. All the scientific evidence in the world cannot prove or disprove the existence of God. That's not what this is all about. Technically speaking, science is actually neutral on the subject. It's what we call, uh, it's a kind of self-imposed neutrality, which we call methodological naturalism. But then again, there are lots of important realities whose existence we can't prove in any formal way, in any scientific or mathematically rigorous way. For example, love. You see, love isn't anything physical. It isn't something you can get your hands on like a chunk of matter. Right? Love isn't even something intangible yet quantifiable like energy, a kinetic energy, a potential energy, a gravitational energy. It's thoroughly, thoroughly without substance. Yet it's certainly more than just a figment of our imagination. Indeed, for all its intangibility, love is arguably the most powerful force known to science. Think about it. Microscopically, love has the power to thoroughly transform our body and brain chemistry. It's the mother of all extreme makeovers. <laughs> and if you've ever fallen in love, you know what I mean. Macroscopically, macroscopically, love has the power to make grown-ups act childish, geniuses act foolish, and the high and mighty go weak in the knees. So, for example, when I say, I know Laurel loves me, no, I can't prove it to you scientifically. But I'm as sure of it as I am that all of you are actually out there and not just 3D holograms. Except for Eric. Yeah, I'm not so sure about it. <laughs> Cheap shot. When I say, I know Laurel loves me, I'm expressing a conviction that I have. A certainty, I feel, based on 13 years of very real evidence called marriage. A feeling weak in the knees. The same is true when I say, I know God exists. God, I believe, is like love. In fact, as a Christian, I believe God is love. Like love, you can't see, smell, taste, touch, or hear him. You can't get your hands on God or quantify him in any way. Yet, like love, 
God's existence is undeniable by the powerful effects he has on us. Microscopically, God has the power to radically change our body and brain chemistry. And by the way, we know that now, thanks to a a new and exciting branch of science called neurotheology. And macroscopically, God has the power to revolutionize the way we see ourselves, the way we see others, the way we see the whole of reality. Talk about the most powerful force in the universe. And yes, sad to say, people do do insane things in the name of God, just as they do in the name of love. And frankly, do in the name of just about everything else, even atheism. Last century, more than 100 million people were slaughtered in the name of godless political utopias, the worst atrocities in human history. Also like love, there is more to God than meets the eye. Q. A robot, for example, like Data on Star Trek, will never be able to comprehend God any more than it can comprehend love. Thankfully, though, we aren't just logical beings. In addition to IQ, we come bundled with SQ, which, as I pointed out, is what makes us positively unique and fascinated by that. What exactly is SQ? Well, I explain it in my book, which, by the way, also includes a simple SQ test. I'm not trying to sell books. Just warning you. But for now, let me just say this much. SQ is a form of intelligence with its own logic and language. Different from IQ, to be sure, but just as powerful. Whereas IQ says, seeing is believing. SQ says, believing is seen. Whereas IQ proves... SQ convicts. That is, whereas IQ lets us prove truths we find hard to believe, SQ lets us believe things we find hard to prove. One other difference. Whereas your IQ is pretty much chiseled in stone, your SQ isn't. SQ is a measure not only of whether you believe in God, but of how influential he is, how high up in the food chain he is in your life. That means SQ can change with time. In my case, as a kid, as I said, I had childish faith, so I had a very low SQ, even though I grew up in a very high Q family. And then when I went to grad school and immersed myself in science, and science completely took over my life, my SQ plummeted even further. Today, my, my SQ is higher than it's ever been before. But truthfully, it's not where I wish it would be. My religious journey, my spiritual maturity, I believe, is really just beginning. It's been only in the last three years that I've taken it seriously. So what's your SQ and why should you care? Well, for one thing, it's like a high HDL level. (laughs) A high SQ level is good for your health, it turns out. 
According to hundreds, now it's actually thousands of peer-reviewed medical studies, I find this fascinating, people who believe in God, and I don't mean just talk to talk, but I mean people who really believe in God, who attend church regularly, who sincerely practice what they preach. In other words, people with what I would call high SQ levels. They actually enjoy longer and healthier lives. Last week, you probably uh, heard of this, the news broke about a study that showed uh, high SQ levels help stave off Alzheimer's. That's the latest. This is typical of the trend in the medical studies we're finding. In one long-range study, people with high SQ uh, actually live seven years longer than the average population. Seven years, folks. Among African Americans, the difference, the disparity is actually 14 years. In other words, high SQ level African Americans live on average 14 years longer than the average African American population. This is more than just an aspirin a day. This is powerful juju. This is powerful medicine. <laughs> and I, believe me, I'm not a political reporter, far from it. But I do see evidence that SQ is also at the bottom of many of today's issues that are dividing our country. If I'm right, then for the sake of peace and harmony, I believe we must start to care equally for our IQ and our SQ. In my book, I compare IQ and SQ to our eyes. It's only when we use them both that we acquire binocular vision. Only when we integrate mind and spirit in a process akin to stereopsis, that we see life's true depth, that we see life's full multidimensional grandeur. Spiritual and intellectual cyclopes. Spiritual and intellectual cyclopes are people who use only one eye. One tries to navigate through life with blind reason. The other tries to navigate through life with blind faith. One tries to make a science out of religion. The other, a religion out of science. One tends to be anti-intellectual. The other, anti-religious. Today, it positively grieves me to say that spiritual and intellectual cyclopes dominate the public conversation. This doesn't come as news to you. The feisty debates between these cyclopes make for good copy and great ratings. And as somebody who's both a print and a TV journalist, I know that all too well. Tragically, because of it, many people have gotten the, the, the terrible misimpression that science and religion are like divorced parents and that we, the children of that divorce, must choose between them. You've heard of the age of dinosaurs? Well, folks, welcome to the age of cyclopes. It breaks my heart to hear spiritual cyclopes badmouth science as if it were some diabolical enterprise. Largely because of science, we now live 30 years longer on average than we did even a century ago. What's more, 
Religion invented science. People like Rene Descartes, William of Ockham, Isaac Newton, Galileo. These devout Christians were the fathers of the scientific method. They invented modern experimental science in order to study God's creation and glorify his name. It also breaks my heart to hear intellectual cyclopes, badmouth religion, as if it were the scourge of the earth. Over the centuries, religion has inspired and patronized the world's finest artists, musicians, architects, all the people we associate with civilized culture. Religion even founded the world's greatest universities, where many of these ungrateful intellectual cyclopes now teach and do research. <laughs> How have we come to this? And the age of cyclopes is, not, is a new phenomenon. It's a new phenomenon. 2,000 years ago, St. Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. So what shall I do? I will sing with my spirit, but also sing with my mind. In other words, back in biblical times, IQ and SQ were seen as the ultimate power couple. The same was true during the Middle Ages. Maimonides, Aquinas, Averroes, these brilliant scholars worked hard to keep the science of their day strongly married to their religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Four centuries ago, science and religion did start bickering. Galileo and the Catholic Church, you'll remember, argued over what actually lay at the center of our solar system, the earth or the sun. But even then, even then, the marriage held together. It wasn't until the 18th century, ironically, coincidentally, when our own country was born, that mind and spirit were pitted against each other by one-eyed zealots. It was the end of the Age of Enlightenment and the beginning of the Age of Cyclopes. It's a new phenomenon. The divorce between IQ and SQ is especially painful for us who treasure them both. As a Christian, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. By studying his teachings, I see something of God's heart and soul. As a scientist, I believe nature is the handiwork of God. By studying her, I see something of God's mind. As I close this evening, I want to urge you all to help restore the age-old marriage between IQ and SQ. If you and I don't do that, if we don't succeed in doing that, then I fear the cyclopes will continue to prevail and ultimately ignite, God forbid, an all-out cultural war. That's why this evening I pray for an end to the age of Cyclopes and the dawning of a new age. I pray for an age of reconciliation, for a reconciliation between our personal beliefs and our public behavior.
between mind and spirit, IQ and SQ, science and religion, church and state. Remember, a marriage is healthiest and happiest. A marriage is happiest and healthiest when the two parties respect each other's individuality, yet engage each other lovingly and act ultimately as one. I pray for an age of openness. Make no mistake, we're all religious. Each of us, even an atheist, believes in something that cannot be proved scientifically. Speak openly about your religious beliefs, the way I've done about mine this evening. Openness, I believe, is our best hope for replacing today's culture of mutual fear and ignorance with tolerance and understanding. And finally, I pray for an age of optimism. I'm an optimist. I believe we'll make it through. Today, the mind and soul of our country is bitterly divided. There's no doubt about it. And it can be discouraging, even frightening. But as Alfred North Whitehead, the brilliant and deeply religious 20th century mathematician, once said, a clash of doctrines is not a disaster. It is an opportunity. Thank you so very, very much. Be happy to take your questions. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very, very much. I neglected to say in my introduction how honored we are to have you here. Let me say that now. Uh, this is kind of what I had uh, in mind when we started Socrates in the City. Something just like this. Not this, but something just like this. Um, but uh, we now have time for Q&A. Habemus tempus. Is that how we say it in Latin? I'm going to use that word. We have time for Q&A. Um, the microphone is back there. I will ask that whoever would like to ask a question, please use that microphone. I will also let you know that if your uh, question is not in the form of a question, uh, if it's a little long, uh, more than, let's say, arbitrarily 49 syllables. All right, 50. Uh, if, it, if it's too long, I just want you to know that uh, I will, uh, by my enemies, I'm, I'm known as um, Socrates Rottweiler. <clears throat> the, pan the panzer moderator, they call me. And uh, I will uh, boldly shut you down, Taylor. I'm, I'm warning you. So uh, anyway, let me just say that, and then um, we will have a, I'll have some closing comments, but we've, we have ample time. You should be out the door by 8.30. Okay. Eric Arf. Uh, I'd like to ask about the Casimir effect and about um, superluminal travel and about the uh, possibility of um, going faster than light. Um, do you think that it's uh, immoral to try and break Mr. Einstein's laws? You know, it's, um, 
I would have never guessed as a student that I would live long enough to see a serious challenge mounted to, you know, there's one basic premise of relativity, i.e. that nothing can travel faster than the speed of light. And yet, um, you know, people at MIT and elsewhere are doing uh, some very, very interesting ex uh, experiments which are fiddling with the speed of light um, uh, in a very profound way. Cosmologists are picking up the baton also and thinking that perhaps tachyons, which are objects that by definition travel faster than the speed of light, we're, we're for, for your own reference, we would be considered, scientifically speaking, as tardions. <laughs> Not retardions, but tardions. Uh, which is to say we're objects that are doomed in some sense to always travel slower than the speed of light. And then, of course, there are photons uh, which travel at the speed of light, not any, not any faster, not any slower, but at. And then there are these hypothetical tachyons and, uh, that this gentleman is referring to. Uh, but as I was saying, cosmologists now think that perhaps tachyons might be a way that they can fill the universe. This is a big problem in cosmology because one of the things we've discovered, believe it or not, is that when you go out, when you step outside, well, this is New York City, you're not going to see much of anything, but if, if you lived where I lived, uh, kind of far removed from the city, uh, you would see a lot of stars. You would see little smears, which represent galaxies and so forth. But it turns out, we've discovered, amazing, that only, we're only seeing 10% of the universe, roughly. That is to say, only 10% of the universe is luminous. 90% of the universe is hidden to us. And this has given rise to this whole notion of dark energy, dark matter, uh, the notion that perhaps tachyons are, the universe is filled with tachyons, we just can't simply see them. As to, to the morality, I, I, I see nothing immoral about challenging ideas so long as it brings us closer to the truth. I think the only immoral thing I can see is uh, pursuing anything that would bring us farther from the truth. It's a good question. Thank you. Um, sir, frankly, I see a great uh, conflict in your uh, speech. Um, when, I, when I listen to you, I see a man who is uh, actually enjoying the, uh, the great divide between religion and science and living it and discovering a lot of truth out of it. Yet, you are proposing a great unification of everything and that there might not be any divide between science and religion anymore. And I think uh, this... This actually scares me. I don't want to live in the world where, you know, somebody tells me that there has to be a unified view of things. And I actually think we would be much more productive and we will enjoy life in the universe and science much more if this divide continues. Uh, it's an interesting point. I think perhaps you may have misunderstood me, which is my fault. Uh, I've been a teacher nearly all my life and whenever... Um, Whenever a student didn't understand something that I said, I took uh, responsibility for it. Um, and it's a very important question and comment that you're making. And in my book, I, I actually make it a point to say that I don't believe in that kind of unification that I think you think I believe in. Did that come out all right? <laughs> uh, so I think you'll be relieved to, to know, even though I didn't do a very good job of it tonight, apparently, to make it clear that I, I share your concern. I... Um, in the book, I call it actually the ultimate collaboration. And I explain uh, in more detail what I mean. That I, I think that 
science and religion will always retain their separate identities, and they will never become kind of this blurred one. They will never kind of meld into one another. Uh, uh, but I think that they will lift each other up. And the point I was attempting to make tonight is to say that what I have come to believe, and this is simply my point of view, I'm not trying to persuade anybody to believe anything, is that just sharing with you my belief that uh, science and religion are not natural enemies. They are both after the same thing, truth, in different ways. And so I, I agree with you. I, and, and there is a lot of talk, and that upsets me as well, about somehow science and religion will become one indistinguishable thing. I don't believe that at all. I think they will always maintain their unique qualities, their unique characteristics, but I think they will lift and inform each other. That's what I meant to say. Thank you. Yes, sir. I would like to thank you for a very clear and uh, uh, expressive talk on both those issues. Um, my question has to do with a more practical question. You as a reporter, as a scientist, and as someone in the media, where the culture wars are at their worst or at their best, depending upon which side you stand on, how do you see that going forward in, based on what you spoke of today? Are you going to be able to get your message out, or will it be squashed by the culture wars? I don't think it'll be squashed. I mean, um, it's a very good question. Because I think that all of us um, understand that those of us who are in the media are, to some degree, very powerful gatekeepers. I mean, all those years uh, at ABC News brought that home very clearly to me. We could decide on a day-to-day -day basis who we were going to invite on to the show and who we weren't. And there are very subtle ways in which you can shape the discussion by the people you invite. So I saw that at Nightline as well, where you know, you typically had the tape setup spot, which was about seven or eight minutes long, and that's usually what I would do. And then Ted would uh, interview t typically two or more guests. And I remember we would always have a meeting, more than one meeting, to discuss who would be those guests. And no matter what the tape setup spot was, the ultimate direction of that program was determined by the selection of the guests. And I remember clearly doing a segment once on the, something called the prime use movement. It, it was an environmental program, and I remember we, had, we were certain we wanted to have Gore on, and then we were all kind of scratching around uh, as to who could be a second guest, and Ted himself suggested Rush Limbaugh, which surprised me, and it surprised a lot of us, I think. And, uh, you know, once you make that kind of selection, you know what kind of show you're going to have. It's going to be a lot of fireworks and not a lot of, and a lot of heat, but not a lot of light. And uh, so I, uh, <laughs> and so I, I understand where you're coming from in the sense that we recognize uh, the, the power of the media today. But I'm not at all discouraged. Um, in fact, quite the opposite. When this book, Can a Smart Person uh, Believe in God book, came out, uh, I wondered what kind of reaction it would get. Uh, my two previous books, as Eric mentioned, were pretty mainstream scientific books reviewed by the New York Times and done very well, been translated all over the world. And I wondered about this book. And I, I also worried a little. I'm, I'm known to millions as the science guy on ABC or wherever they've seen me, and I wondered how uh, people would react. But uh, 
So far, so good. I mean, I, I, so I'm encouraged by the reaction. I also sense things are changing. I think the media, I, I wish I could tell you one joke, but I better, I dare not. It's not a joke, actually. It's a, a true story, but I, I better not. It was told to me in confidence. But I think, no, no, I can't. I really can't. But, but uh, there is, what I'm saying is that there is evidence that I'm seeing firsthand. And I, I, uh, as someone who is very involved in the media, is uh, the media's mind is perhaps broadening. It's, I'll just leave it at that. Thank so you. I'm encouraged. Yeah, you're welcome. Keep Thank you, up. sir. <clears throat> Hello. My question relates to your spiritual journey and the concept of SQ and its measurement. And I am reminded of last week's talk I heard from John Stott, who spoke about spiritual maturity and that being a deeper and deeper personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And I'm also reminded of how Moses wanted to see God's face. And I think as Christians, we want a deeper and deeper relationship with God and want to understand the whole universe more clearly so that we have a better understanding of God and our relationship to God. So my question um, relates to also Job, who after going through all that he went through said, my ears have heard you, but now my eyes see you. So my question is really more related to the measurement of spiritual SQ, as you put it, in your estimation and in your spiritual journey, how does one measure that and how does suffering come into that or how do our personal experiences come into that in a, in a scientific manner? How much time do I have? <laughs> um, it's, a, it's a jackpot question. That was 52 syllables. <laughs> just made it. Um, let, let me just say this much. I, 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 uh, my fuller answer is in the book that I've written. I mean, this is, this is kind of... I, and I, 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 I only say that because... I have struggled all my life to, you know, I have this weird life where I was brought up in this intensely religious environment and then chose for myself a, an intensely intellectual career and question that I have to face in my life, I had to face in my life, was are these two reconcilable or not? Are they going to just, am, am, are parts of me simply going to be in, uh, at odds with, with themselves? Um, the notion of SQ came about this way. Uh, John, uh, John Gardner, professor of psychology at Harvard, uh, some years ago came up with the notion of, uh, of, of uh, multiple intelligences. And uh, if you look at the list of multiple intelligences, there are things like IQ, which is what everybody measures. It's a kind of a logical, mathematical ability. But uh, Gardner uh, said, no, but there are other kinds of intelligences we really ought to consider because they lead to success in life. And there are things like BQ, body quotient, for people who are very adept at moving their bodies, have a kind of kinesthetic sense of where their, the parts of their body are at any given time and space. And, uh, and muse, MQ for musical ability and so forth. But nowhere in this list was SQ. There was no sense of acknowledging that uh, there was a spiritual intelligence, and I, 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 there was a huge omission for me because, as I indicated, what we've come to understand is that our spirituality is what makes us unique. It's what causes us to stand out. And uh, 
So that's where I began exploring this notion of perhaps there is a way of quantifying uh, SQ or spirituality. Uh, in a nutshell, as I said in my speech, it's not just simply a measure of whether you believe in God or not. Uh, I, for, for me, is where I am in my spiritual journey, uh, people will say to me, do you believe in God? Uh, I'm, I'm rather well beyond just believing. Uh, I, I find that an easy thing to do now, just for, for the reasons I shared with you tonight. Uh, I am now in the process of really cultivating a, rela a personal relationship with God. I mean, there's no other way to put it but that I'm in love with God. I mean, it, it just informs everything that I do. I, I don't set aside time in a day to pray. I'm in a state of constant prayer. And so I think that SQ is an attempt, and it's not a, you know, strictly scientific, it's, uh, but it's serious. It, it's, it's an attempt to quantify to what degree does God enter your thought processes from moment to moment? In other words, uh, we can be a Christian and simply go to church for one hour every Sunday, and then you, know, you go about your life. And uh, such a person would score naturally rather low on, on the SQ scale. The, the point is, is God informing somehow everything about your life, the way you treat yourself, the way you treat others, the way you treat the world? And if the answer is that God influences a lot of your life, then you will score rather high on SQ. And as a bonus, it's just this remarkable body of scientific research that's growing up that is now quantifying even further the fact that people with high SQ, and these are committed, people who are committed to a personal relationship with God, not people who simply call themselves Christians or Jews or whatever, but people who are really living uh, their faith. These people are reaping the benefits, uh, mental health, physical health, especially, uh, I mean, even uh, older population. I didn't, you know, I truncated the list. I speak a little bit more about it. Uh, uh, but elderly people suffer less depression. There's less suicide among teenagers, less drug, I mean, on and on and on. And mind you, these studies are controlled for all the obvious things. This is not just a... A socializing thing. In other words, my people, I say, well, yeah, sure, if you go to church all the time or you're around other Christians or whatever, or other uh, people of your faith, uh, they have controlled for that. This is not just a coffee clatch index. This is high SQ. How, to what degree does a personal relationship with God dominate your life? And the degree to which it dominates your life, you're reaping uh, rewards. It's as if this is how God meant you to, meant you to live. And if you're divorced from him, you suffer the ill effects? I hope that answers your question. Thank you. Thank you so much for your words tonight. I have a couple of questions. One, I've heard it said that the only absolute proofs are in mathematics and philosophy. And yet I hear scientists tell religious people, prove that God exists, prove that Jesus is who he was. And yet, I'm, you might consider to me, me to be medicine light. Um, and to me, medicine is science wedded to art. Science is not, uh, or medicine is not an exact science. And as I read, 
Um, in the scientific journals, I can say, we don't really know how this works, we just know that it does. And so they apply to themselves less proof than they demand of those, who are, those of us who believe in God and Jesus Christ. And so my question is, um, is there an absolute proof with science? And um, it seems to me that they're being unfair. And how would we answer those people who say, well, prove to me that Jesus exists when I don't see them proving absolutely for themselves what they believe? Yes. Um. That was Very 50, good. 50 syllables on the nose. You're right on target. Another great question. Uh, you know, I think for... Uh, how many of you took geometry in high school? Yeah. Okay, so you, you know what I'm about to tell you. Yeah, I hear a lot of groans. Uh, uh, you recall uh, proving a theorem in geometry, let's say that uh, all triangles, whether they're fat or skinny, tall or short, uh, all triangles have interior angles that always add up to 180 degrees. Hard to believe, but I can prove it. That's one of those examples of what I said where it's hard to believe, but I can prove it. Uh, that is kind of the... Where did you go? Oh, there you are. Uh, the... <laughs> It disappeared on me. Uh, the quintessential, uh, it's the epitome of what we consider proof. It is so wonderful. It's so clean and neat. And you start with your premise. You know, and Euclid began with ten premises. He had definitions, but he had ten premises. And from those ten premises flowed the whole of Euclidean geometry. It is a model of logical perfection, of proof. It doesn't get any better than that. And that's what you learn in high school. And after high school, you realize how much more complicated the world really is. Uh, because what you begin to discover, and it's what I began to discover as a, as a student of science, is that uh, when you step outside that kind of idealized Euclidean world, uh, proof uh, as defined by that just doesn't exist. Now, there are other branches of mathematics where such beautiful proofs do exist. And, I, and for some reason, and, and that's one of the reasons why I actually in some ways always loved math, even more than physics. Physics is so sloppy. It's so messy. You know, if, even if you take a simple thing like I see a tree branch swaying in the spring breeze in Central Park, and I go, hmm... I wonder how I could describe the motion of that tree branch. It's a simple observation, right? It's unsolvable. It's, it's not just even a compound pendulum. It's a compound, compound, compound pendulum. I mean, that what you learn when you do quantum mechanics, for example, there are really only a couple of problems that you can solve exactly, and that is the hydrogen atom and what's something called particle in a box. Everything else in quantum mechanics, you have to rely on kind of approximations that rely on supercomputers. So once you, in, once you graduate beyond the world of kind of Euclidean geometry where everything is clean and neat and proofs are absolute, airtight, uh, proof kind of goes by the wayside. And yes, I agree with you that there are uh, scientists are kind of, some scientists, not all, are rather shameless about how they'll try to intimidate you into thinking that, uh, you know, proof is the, only, uh, uh, is the only way in which you can believe something. The fact is... 
that I would venture to say 100% of science is not proved. Uh, and Einstein made that point. I'm not saying anything that's earth-shattering. Einstein made it. Because in science, we're always one experimental result away from disproving the current paradigm. I think, all, I think it was Huxley, and I think it was Aldous Huxley, who said something like, it was, it was a wonderful quote, something like, uh, the, the tragedy of science, uh, a beautiful theory can be spoiled by a single ugly fact. <laughs> Some, something like that, you know? But, so... You know, and, and in, in my book I talk about, you know, in some ways, uh, science, scientists have a kind of a, a terminal case of the yips because you never, I mean, you worry about what headline, you know, you wake up in the morning, God, hope the world is still in one piece. Well, scientists do pretty much the same way. I mean, like the first gentleman asked about superloom, who would have thought that we would be seriously thinking that Einstein was dead wrong, and dead wrong in many different ways. Dead wrong now if, if superstring theory is to, be, uh, is to be taken seriously, and physicists do, even at Harvard. So it's got to be something taken, to be taken seriously. But that, you know, Einstein made a name for himself by saying, we don't live in a three-dimensional universe, which is what Isaac Newton, his predecessor, believed. We live in a four-dimensional universe. He made a big name for himself that the fourth dimension was time. Well, now maybe that's not true. Maybe it's 10. Some people are even talking that it's 25 dimensions. And now the, he made a name for himself also that speed of light was a rock-solid speed limit. Nothing, nowhere, under any circumstances could ever violate that. Now we're seriously talking about it. And so this concept of proof is um, uh, its rather bold talk, but it doesn't really exist. Not, not in science. Yes, sir. Uh, thanks for your talk. I, I really like your concept or your phrase, binocular focus. So what changes would you envision, or maybe better said, would, rather, would like to see in our educational system that strives so hard to separate church and state? Ooh, I knew the evening wouldn't go by without that question. Oh, are we out of time, Eric? Uh, are we out of time? No, no, it's a serious question, and I don't mean make light of it. Look, my thinking on that is still in progress. Just going to say that up front. It's a really sticky thing. Uh, and, I, and I know behind that question is this notion, can, should we treat, teach creationism or intelligent design in science class? Something along, that, along those lines. Uh, and I'm asked that everywhere I go. Here, here's my thought. And I'm willing to be talked out of it. <laughs> yeah, but here, here's, my current, here's my current way of thinking. Uh, if evolution is taught as being what it is, which is a theory, a very powerful theory, uh, and that the theory is taught with warts and all, that is to say, uh, the, th the theory of evolution, and I don't have all the time in the world to talk about this, but just the short version is, the theory of evolution as we know it and understand it today is not your grandfather's theory of evolution. In other words, it isn't, it isn't the theory of evolution that Darwin had in mind. We're, we're a long way from that. Dar Darwin, when he uh, developed the theory of evolution, uh, and it was a brilliant insight on his part to see this, that this mechanism exists in nature, 
he had in mind uh, what we call gradualism, that, it, that, that somehow uh, all the species we see today uh, evolved gradually, piecewise, continuously from nothing. Uh, and uh, we, we, we now uh, have come a long way from that in the sense that, number one, we don't believe in gradualism. It's what we call punk ek which is short for punctuated equilibrium. And this is something that uh, 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 J. Stephen Gould, for example, made very famous, the late uh, Gould uh, from Harvard. The, the idea being that we now know that about every 33 million years or so, and this is mysterious, we don't completely understand it, but we know this much, that it does appear as if every 33 million years or so, something happens to kind of wipe the slate clean that whether it, it, the, the prevailing idea is that perhaps the Earth is bombarded by a meteor or a comet of some kind that wipes out lots of species. And so we now know that the, the species we see today uh, are not the result of something that just gradually, continually evolved from nothing. They, it's, it's much more complicated than that. Uh, the second way in which uh, the, Darwinian, the original Darwinian theory now is uh, under suspicion and really uh, uh, subject to some criticism is that, uh, try as we will, we don't understand how a living molecule, I mean, I'm just talking about a living molecule, never mind a living being, just a living molecule, like a protein or something, can develop randomly or accidentally from inorganic material. There are a lot of theories, you know, that clays somehow took, clays have uh, the ability to take molecules and concentrate them and bring, piece them together. But, uh, you know, bottom line is that thousands of the most brilliant minds on Earth have spent centuries trying to create life from nothing and they haven't succeeded. And so it's difficult to see how it all could have happened by accident. If you have this many people who are very brilliant, uh, deliberately trying to create it and not succeeding, then it's, it's difficult to believe that it, oh, but it just happened by accident. Uh, so all that's a fairly long-winded way of answering your question this way. If uh, the theory of evolution is taught in biology, and I can't imagine how it cannot be. I mean, I, 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 I don't think any biology class can be considered uh, serious if they don't teach that there is a mechanism by which species uh, adjust to changing climates. Uh, I have no trouble with that. But what's in question is to what degree can the theory of evolution describe how the species as we know them came into being? And that's the rub. And if it's taught as if the theory of evolution can explain how life could start from scratch, then I think that science is trespassing, uh, overreaching itself. And then I think all bets are off. And then I think it's very important that, uh, that, uh, that voice be given to, uh, to legitimate criticisms, including intelligent design. I mean, I, I just spoke to you about Anthony Flew. There were two things that made Anthony Flew uh, convert from being an atheist. Number one, was the theory of an intelligent design. It's just this growing body of evidence that the universe is just um, uh, designed for us. As somebody said, the Big Bang happened for us. It's not as if we're kind of this insignificant species on an insignificant planet circling an insignificant galaxy and so forth. 
It's as if the whole universe was created for us. It's pretty remarkable. Uh, That was one of the things that sent Anthony Flew to the other side. The other one was the human genome. When it was published, what, a couple of years ago, uh, he said, my God, molecules can't arrange themselves like this at random. The human genome is just, the complexity is mind-boggling. And when you're a scientist, you see the complexity up front. It's hard to really, I mean, truthfully, it takes more faith to believe at this point that it all happened by accident than to believe that it was designed. And that's just the truth.